Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. We made it to the end of 2021. To celebrate, we'll be reviewing some of my favorite moments from this year's episodes. This will be a two-parter due to the volume of content. Part 1 will highlight episodes 42 to 71, and next week we'll review from 72 to 89. Since we started working on this podcast almost two years ago, we've brought on a wide range of guests, including prominent self-advocates such as Dr. Temple Grandin, Dr. Stephen Shore, Dr. Carrie Magro, Danny Bowman, and Anthony Ayani, parents like Tiffany Hammond and Bobby Rubio, some of our Global Autism Project partners, such as Yasser Al-Jaidi from Saudi Arabia and Pooja Panesser from Kenya, and other professionals in the field, such as Dr. Megan Miller from the Do Better Movement and Camille Proctor from The Color of Autism. If you've been listening to our podcast for a while, this 2021 recap will bring you back to the heartfelt stories we've been hearing from our guests. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome! This episode will give you a good idea of what Autism Knows No Borders is all about. In this episode, discover what's possible when change inspires community. In episode 42, which now feels like ages ago, we introduced you to the Global Autism Project team. Listen to our CEO and founder, Molly Ola Penny, talk about our organization's culture and how we weathered 2020. A couple of years ago, maybe two or three years ago, I woke up and I realized that like, wow, like the Global Autism Project is the organization with the culture that like I always dreamed we would have, you know, and I think that it takes a minute and it takes a skill set to strike a balance between like being walked all over as a leader and being a leader who no one's afraid to tell you you're not feeling well because they believe in preemptive sick days, <laughs> you know? So it's like, and it's been a learning process for sure. And I think like, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, embrace failure, right? Like I just kept falling on my face, trying, trying to build the culture of the organization. And I think that was part of it too, is that while it has to be intentional and co-created, you also, to an extent, have to like let it grow up, you know? And I think the biggest thing in this organization is that this shift, I think, and Cassie and Asia have been here longer, is that we don't step over things. If something happens that feels a little off or we, you know, don't nail a project in the way that we had hoped to, like, it's a conversation and we figure it out. And I think that has probably been a really big shift, but it's interesting because I feel like in my brain, when I was in my twenties, I created this culture, although this is beyond my wildest dreams, but it's really been co-created and it's really been intentional. And each of you have, have created what we have right now. In episode 43, we brought you Tiffany Hammond, an autism self-advocate, a mother, and the host of the blog Fidgets and Fries. In this clip, Tiffany shares her thoughts on the overlap between intersectionality and neurodiversity. 
a lot of times people don't really look at intersectionality from a disabled perspective. See, a lot of times disabled people are left out of like a lot of conversations, majority conversations, really. But then you have the neurodiversity movement and they're not always looking at race. They're usually just looking at neurotype. They're usually just approaching the issue as a state of how our minds are operating. They're just usually approaching it from me just being autistic. Mm -hmm. So they're looking for solutions on how to help me as an autistic person. And then you typically neglect that I have these issues coming into me as being a Black person as well. So we need to introduce both. Because a lot of times neurodiversity isn't that isn't intersectional that much, especially when it cross sections with race or gender or sexuality. It's a large focus on neurotype, how our brains are, and how we are disadvantaged in a society that leverages normal brains, quote unquote. <laughs> Episode 44 featured David Badanis, a father to three young men, two of whom are on the autism spectrum. David and his wife Irene are the founders of Jake's House, a charitable organization based in Canada whose mission is to support individuals on the spectrum throughout their lifespans. Here's David discussing the journey of accepting his son's diagnoses. My wife, I would say about five minutes after Jake was diagnosed, did an incredible job of finding appropriate resources, such as therapies, finding out what schools would accept him, which ones weren't. And there were far more that wouldn't accept him that would. So the picture I'm trying to paint is that she immediately reset all of the expectations for her to suit the boy's needs. I didn't. I took another path, unfortunately, and I was hoping or I was in denial that, you know, maybe the boys were going to snap out of their conditions. So I spent far, far, far too long hoping or wishing that something was going to develop and they were going to go away. My wife, Irene, was very practical in applying appropriate supports for the boys. And then when I finally awoke from my slumber, you know, and had a chance to look back at what those 10 or 12 years were like, the combination of understanding how hard it is for parents And, uh, you know, to be quite honest, the frustration of not being able to help our own children further, you you do sometimes reach a limit and not so much a limit that they can't learn more tomorrow or the next day. But you start to frame that this is probably the extremes as to where the children are going to develop in terms of their, you know, abilities to communicate that my boys will always be defined as at-risk children. Neither of them should be uh, left alone for more than five or 10 minutes. So it was a kind of a sobering issue, and I had a deep regret for the way I had ignored the prior five or six years. I felt guilt that I had somewhat abandoned my wife in her, um, not not physically, I didn't go anywhere, but just that mentally I, I wasn't as supportive as I probably should have been. Episode 45 showcased Marcus Boyd an autism self-advocate, musician, professional DJ, and clothing line owner. He has collaborated with artists such as Lil Wayne and Marquez Houston. Listen to Marcus talk about having to mask while working. 
at that time, though, I was ashamed because I'm looking up to these rappers or these singers. These are superstars in my eyes. So what I'm going to tell them, listen, okay, about 10 minutes ago, I just had an emotional behavior. So I may not be all the way there and present for your time and your quality. And plus they was paying me. You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I was tired of eating Raymond noodles and pork and beans at that time. And plus I wanted to be normal. I thought I wasn't normal when I already was normal. Peer pressure is a beast. It's a beast when you don't have to deal with what we deal with with autism, but it's more of a monster when you deal with what we deal with with autism because we, we want to be in the, with the peers. So the pressure can't, if you're not strong enough, the pressure will mount and get you. Was that tiring for you to hide your autism? Yes, it was. Because it was almost like putting myself in a closet. Like, shh, mm-hmm. don't you say nothing. Don't you, don't you say nothing. Because I'm trying to wear this mask and I'm trying to be one way. When in my reality, I got this situation in the closet. The problem is people don't know how to communicate with us. They haven't found our way to communicate. So because we don't, if we don't verbalize, they feel like that's the only communication we may have. And that's not true. It's millions of many different communication values. I think patience and dedication has to be there first before anybody can be able to understand fully and deal with autism. In episode 46, I was joined by Maria Davis-Pierre. Maria is the mother of an eight-year-old girl on the spectrum, a licensed mental health counselor, and the founder and CEO of Autism in Black, Inc., an organization dedicated to raising autism awareness and reducing the stigma within the Black community. In this clip, Maria describes how the Black parents' experience might vary from that of parents with different backgrounds. One is... um understanding that we may come from a multi-generational home. So if I'm in my home and my mom is in my home or my grandmother is in my home, then they de- they're definitely influencing how I raise my child. And understanding that, again, the mistrust and all of that stuff that I've talked about, those stigmas are coming into play. The religion is coming into play. So there's so much that is coming in into that room with you that you have to take into consideration. So if I know that there's a multi-generational family unit that I'm dealing with, I'm understanding that there's a lot of information this parent is getting, and there may be a lot of information that I don't agree with that this parent is getting. But if I come from the approach of, you have to do what I say, and that's it, that it's going to automatically lead this parent to feeling defensive instead of coming from a both and approach. Yes, you can pray. Yes, you can, you know, uh, go to church and speak with your pastor. And you can also do the interventions that I'm coming in here with. So it's a both and rather than an either or situation, understanding that I'm more likely to listen to the people that I trust in my circle, which are more than likely my friends, family, and my religious supports rather than the healthcare community. Um, So trying to take that away will lead me to be defensive. Also understanding that that I may be struggling with my faith and knowing that I'm allowing you in here to come in with interventions for my child, but now is God going to see me as not believing or trusting in his will? So it may seem like I'm resistant, but in fact, I'm struggling with 
you coming in here and how it's now going to be deemed by God. So understanding that there's so many things that can be going on within that home and you may not be even knowing because it's, of course, not seen with the naked eye. In episode 47, we brought Jeff Snyder on the show. Jeff is an autism and neurodiversity self-advocate, a public speaker, and the host of the blog Going the Distance. Here's Jeff's take on how neurodiversity can be found in the classic cartoon Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Rudolph is about neurodiversity because Rudolph, he's born with a red nose. That's obvious. His father, who's one of Santa's reindeer, tries to cover it up with dirt to pretend like he doesn't have a red nose. I wanted to put that in because there are some parents who will try to hide their child's disability. And that's not right. It's not healthy. And it's kind of like masking, if you will, because mm. a lot of pe- parents will try to ma- mask their children or the children will try to mask themselves. You've got to be open. You've got to just claim yourself out there and let people know you are who you are. And then another character that I put in is Hermie the Elf, because Hermie's kind of the one who has an identity crisis. He wants to be a dentist, but because he's an elf, they think he should just make toys. And unfortunately, a lot of employers will see that in some people with autism or other disabilities, because they think because they're disabled, they should be relegated to this particular job, which is true. But what if the individual wants to go beyond what their purpose is? Like people think that, you know, there's an individual who would, who is a janitor, but people think that he should be a janitor because of his disability. But if the person wants to move up from being a janitor, they should do that. And same thing with Hermie the elf. He wants to be a dentist. He doesn't want to make toys. And the elves should listen to him. And they don't. And of course, it's not until the end where he looks into the head elf's mouth and says, I better set up an appointment for you a week from Tuesday, 4.30 sharp. Episode 48 featured Ayu Suparman, the mother of two young boys, the eldest being on the autism spectrum. Based in Singapore, she and her husband host a podcast called Parents Made Special, in which they share information and resources for families in their community. In this clip, Ayu describes what it was like to hear her son's first words. The first time that I actually heard him expressing his need is when he wanted to go to the toilet. So he was actually saying in Bahasa, saying that, Mom, I want to pee peace. So pee is basically, I need to, to actually pee, you know. So that was the first time I was like, where did you learn that from? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it was like, he's expressing himself. Because most of the time, he would either like, try to show gestures. Of course, we do not want him to continuously showing gestures. But when he says that, I was like, wow. That means you've been learning from school or you've been learning from whatever I've been repeating every time, every day. So yeah, in other words, I, I feel that we shouldn't give up. Even if you feel that they are not listening, they are actually listening. It's just that they didn't time to process all this as well. Yeah. So what are some of the things that he likes to do? What are some of his interests? (laughs) 
I think for now, his greatest interest is transportation. And to be honest with you, I am amazed as well that he can really memorize and uh, recognize every vehicles, even some of the vehicles that I don't know. I even learned from him as well. So every pictures, I brought him a, a stack of a vehicles, a book. So he every time, every night, he would just flip the books and then he would show me like, this is car. This is yach. This is movers, you know, and it's amazing. Um, in other words, I believe there's some strength in them that we do not know. We just need to find out what is the strength, and then we got to tap on it. In episode forty-nine, autism self-advocate Michael Gilberg talked about his role as a special education and disability rights attorney. Listen to Michael explain how every student has the right to a free, appropriate public education. Under the law, a child is supposed to receive an, receives an appropriate education if they're making meaningful progress from grade to grade, more than as they call it de minimis progress, the Supreme Court said, meaning the child has to be progressing satisfactorily. Generally, that would be one grade level in work per year, depending on the child's cognitive abilities. Obviously, children of lower cognitive functioning are not expected to progress at the same rate as a typical child. Children of average to above average intelligence have to progress at least a grade level a year to be receiving, to, as a minimum, to be receiving an appropriate education. If the child is anywhere from low average to superior and they're not progressing a grade level, it's generally not appropriate. Mm -hmm. But you're just talking about grades, right? Well, academically, but then there's also the social emotional piece, mm -hmm. which is where a lot of autistic kids come in, that a lot of schools do not understand what is and is not appropriate. You know, a lot of kids do not understand how to address social emotional deficits. Schools don't. Kids who were bullied, very often schools deny the bullying when it exists. I used to use the hypothetical case of a kid who's getting A's in a school, but then is depressed and suicidal, and then I got the real case. The kid's grades were fine. By his grades, you wouldn't know anything was wrong, but he tried to kill himself twice in the public high school, and the school realized at that point they had to outplace him. Episode 50 showcased two members of the ASD band. Lead singer Rowan Tufaha and drummer Spencer Murray, joined by their manager, Andrew Simon. Exclusively composed of musicians on the autism spectrum, the ASD band was formed by Canadian charity Jake's House to raise awareness and highlight strengths related to autism. In these next clips, Rowan and Spencer share how autism has a positive impact on their musicianship. How do you think your autism affects your musical strengths? Well, I would say that it affects my musical strengths because I'm a perfectionist and I tend to know by detail, which is more than anyone else has bargained for, like, you know, at that point. Mm -hmm. You mean when it comes to singing on with the right key or memorizing lyrics? Yeah, that's pretty much it. And also like knowing like, you know, what mistakes I need to correct and stuff. I've always kind of felt rhythm in everyday life. So like, when I started playing drums, it just kind of, it came a little more naturally. And like now, since I've been playing drums, like I'm pretty much always kind of thinking everything in a rhythm. I'm always tapping. It's like, there's never a time that like, I'm not kind of doing something in some sort of a rhythm. And it also helps, like I have a really good ear for music too. So it helps like when I'm like writing new songs with my band or something and I give them ideas of what I like and don't like. And also being able to like, play stuff by ear too helps a lot. 
In episode 51, I had the pleasure of speaking with Bobby Rubio. Bobby is the writer and director of Float, a Pixar spark short animated film inspired by his relationship with his autistic son, Alex. Here's Bobby explaining why he chose floating to represent his son's autism. First, I wanted it to be about difference, and I wanted it to be a metaphor. And since this is animation, I wanted it to showcase something that you wouldn't see in live action. Just So visually, I wanted the kid to be different from other kids. And visually, if you have a floating kid, that immediately makes him different from other kids. Yeah. And I'm glad you asked this question because people have asked why floating. And I say, I wanted my son to have a cool power because I didn't want him to have a negative power. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. I still see him as a positive thing. And in some cases, autism is a superpower. And again, I wanted it to be positive. And so floating became that as a positive look. And it also visually made him look different from the other children. That was the point of the short too, because the dad was going to take Alex away out of the park and he was going to take him back home. Had he crossed out, had he gone outside, life would have been the same. Mm -hmm. It would have been the same, like hiding out always and not accepting But the dad makes a choice. I'm not going to go outside of this. I am going to accept my responsibilities. I am going to accept my son for who he is. I am going to let him be himself. And so that's when the dad takes off all his his jacket and lets him be himself. Because before he was like hiding him, putting rocks in his pocket, not letting him fly, not letting him be himself. So, yes, that is the path to acceptance is to let go and let your emotions out there. You can't bottle it. You got to let it go and accept. In episode 52, I spoke with Dr. Carrie Magro. Carrie is an autism self-advocate, an international motivational speaker, a best-selling author, an entertainment consultant, and the CEO and founder of the nonprofit KFM Making a Difference. This is Carrie discussing the lack of autistic and disabled actors in the entertainment industry. There's definitely some ableism involved. I don't think that a lot of studios are actively pursuing autistic and disabled actors to audition for these roles. I think also from the other perspective, it's that being that autism is a spectrum, those who have high support needs simply wouldn't necessarily be part of these roles because of the level of support they would specifically need. But that, on the other hand, can be shown as a sign of ableism. I I know for Sia's film, one of the things that came up was that they actually had an autistic actress who was considered for the role, but they found it was too challenging for her on set. And the only thing I could think about was they could have tried a little bit harder to make more reasonable accommodations for that actress. Mm -hmm. That was kind of something that just blew my mind. So I definitely think it's a little bit of everything, making sure that disabled actors are getting opportunities and are being sought out by studios, but then also at the same time, just 
really making sure they're, they're receiving the accommodations because if they get that role, like the potential role in that film, we want to make sure that they succeed, just like any other actor. In episode 53, I was joined by two members of our SkillCore community, Natalie Odio and Christina Flores. SkillCore is our volunteer program that gives professionals and self-advocates an opportunity to provide meaningful training to our partner autism centers around the world. Natalie and Christina host a podcast called Monday Morning Coffee, where they aim to ease Monday mornings by giving emotional support to other professionals in the field of autism services. In this clip, Natalie and Christina share what they've learned about sustainability from going on SkillCore trips. It's something when I came back, when I was trying to inform my donors or the people that I was working with what it was that we did, it wasn't that we went in and fixed things. That wasn't the point of it. It was listening to the individuals that we were working with, giving them the tools so that they could be sustainable, so that they can be independent. And the whole you know, message behind the Global Autism Project of do with and not for, which I think was super important for people to hear because they kind of thought we were like these saviors. And it, that wasn't it. It was collaborating with the partner sites and how they can eventually fade out of this program and be independent. Yeah, that's so funny that you say that is because, you know, when I came back from my trip as well, even here in the States in the ABA field, you know, I got questions like, oh, yeah, when you went over there, they didn't know anything. And I was like, Actually, no, it was the opposite. They are extremely well-trained, even better than some here, you know? <laughs> so it's just that we're assuming things, you know, and, and advocating for we are there do with and not for. We are there to collaborate. I'm not there to just be a hero, you know, and, and sometimes it has to do with our American culture. But I think, too, growing from that professionally is bringing that to our clinics or wherever we worked and showing other people, no, like even in our supervision, you know, of RBTs, what do you think is best? What do you think you should do? You know, I use that more now too. And it helps them grow. And even with parents as well, it helps them grow to problem solve and do that. And I think a lot of the times we do want to be the hero. We have all this knowledge and we're like, yes, we're behavior analysts, but sometimes we have to take a step back and realize, you know, we need to listen as well. In episode 54, we introduced you to one of our global autism partners, Jie Bing Zhang, who is the founder of Huisong Children Rehabilitation Center in Nancheng, China. She is also the mother of a 21-year-old autistic man. Mrs. Chung was joined by our podcast intern, Linda Zhang, who interpreted from Chinese to English for us. Listen to Mrs. Chung talk about why she decided to start her own center. When my son started early interventions, he was almost five years old, and he actually could have started it earlier, but at that time, there was no center in our city. So I had to take my child to a different city for early interventions, and we had to stay there for long term and I had to rent an apartment and everything. I knew that my son needed further interventions for a longer period of time. I also learned that there were many other children in Nanchang who needed early interventions and who seeked them in different cities. So I thought if we had a local center for early interventions, 
Not only my own son would have a place to go, but also the other children in Nanchang. They wouldn't have to go to other cities anymore and could stay at home. Episode 55 featured Thomas Island. Tom is an autism self-advocate, Toastmasters International accredited speaker, certified human potential coach, professional diversity and inclusion consultant, and TEDx speaker. Here's Tom's views on advocacy and telling your own story. No one tells your story better than you do. And I think particularly in the autism community, too many people on the spectrum are not speaking up at all, letting other people tell their story for them, or not seeing what life really has to offer them. And that's why I named my book Come to Life, because life isn't going to come to you like some miracle is not just going to fall into your lap. It's up to you to come to life. You have to go out there and make things happen for yourself. And I think that when we embrace that concept, get out of our comfort zone, come out of our shell, face fears, that's going to improve outcomes all around. In episode 56, our CEO, Molly, came back on the show to discuss the motto that drives our work. Do with, not for. So first of all, the actual sort of hashtag do with, not for um, was sort of, you know, it's like we've been doing this work and trying to think about how to describe it. And I was invited to do a TEDx talk. And so for that, you really have to have an idea worth sharing and best to have it be about five words or less. So we spent a lot of time thinking like, okay, so like we do it with other people, with their insight, with their with centering, their experience, like all this. And we settled on do with, not for. And it really does speak to how we do our work here. You know, the why we do our work is the partners around the world. The why we do our work is because we know that in places where autism is little understood, it can put people in harm's way, honestly. That's really why we do this work. And the how of it is doing with, doing with the local community. See, a lot of times in international development work, it will be somebody coming in and essentially, you know, we've all heard the the proverb, right? Like give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, teach a man to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. And it's a lot of giving fish, right? And just saying, here's a fish for you and a fish for you. I actually like to take that one step further. I like to take that to ask them if they're hungry and what they like to eat. Because I think a lot of times in international development, what we see, what we experience is that people are coming in and not only just handing out the you know fish, so to speak, but they're also just handing out fish to people who don't necessarily eat fish. Vegetarians, maybe, literally. (laughs) So I think the do with, not for really just talks about the importance of that, of asking people, of starting with a conversation. So in this conversation, it may be preferable to us that we live in a world where we are allowed to engage exactly as we want to engage and nobody ever tells us anything differently. It is essential we are able to live our lives. It is essential. And I think, you know, you can take anybody from all over the map. You can take ABA, you can take autistic self-advocates, you can take our partners around the world, you can take Global Autism Project as an organization, and we can all agree on one thing. And that is that people with autism 
should be able, or autistic people. We can't even agree on that, okay? But what we can agree on is that they should not be harmed. They should not have their lives taken from them. We can all agree on that. And so I'm hopeful that we can start there and look at what that looks like. And I really get that the definition of harm varies across populations. Get it? We can all agree that nobody with autism should have their life taken from them. In episode 57, autistic board-certified behavior analyst Mari Serda talked about her collectivist approach to providing services. In this clip, Mari shares her ideas on reforming ABA. I think perhaps the reason why many of these larger organizations haven't spoken out, because when you make a statement like that, then action has to follow. And if they're not prepared for the action piece, then all they are doing is giving a lip service. If they're truly about the work, then what we will start to see is boards bringing in autistic voices, boards having autistic individuals be a part of writing the ethical code, universities bringing in autistic voices to actually write some of the coursework and curriculum. We have to make sure that what we are doing is not bringing in a face for token performative measures or for lip service. If you're really not ready to hear what we have to say, don't bring us on board. But then I want to kind of further say to my autistic community, if you are not prepared to speak and offer productive resolution that is able to think logically through this reform, even though we do have an impassioned desire for this to change, we have to go about it logically. And I'm impatient. I want it to change immediately. But we have to recognize where we have to take the small steps to build that momentum, to get the snowball rolling. And if we refuse to do that, if we refuse to sit in those uncomfortable spaces, knowing that that's the direction we're going, we're just going to stay right where we're at. We're going to become stagnant. And my husband said, it's like autophagy, you know, where you just consume yourself because all we're doing is just, is just continuing to yell into the void that, that this is, that this is wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, what you've done is wrong to my people. Okay, great. We're bringing you in. Help us make the change. Help us. And, and it's going to be difficult because what that means is to collaborate. And when you collaborate, what you're ultimately recognizing and acknowledging is we don't always agree or see eye to eye, but what we value is a better system. Episode 58 was a special anniversary episode. You'll hear from some of our dedicated listeners expressing what they've taken away from listening to the show. Here are Griffin Warble, Swathi Srinivas, Mary Johnston, Karen Whitehurst, Nicola Skura, Colleen Dorsey, and Liz Castillo. Having heard that episode when they interviewed Anthony Ioni is, is, is strictly awesome because now I know someone who is that. Now I know someone who is on the spectrum, who is a father, who is a husband, who is able to pursue his passion, both playing basketball at a collegiate school as well as being a motivational speaker, which is something I believe he's passionate about now, really just, again, connects with me and 
I'm so glad that y'all were able to have the opportunity to talk to not just Anthony Ioni, but various other individuals who are also autistic, who define the stigmas or the stereotypes and show that stereotypes are just false representations. The episode that stood out to me the most was the one with Pamela Fisher about music therapy. And it was because that's exactly the kind of work that I want to do with my piano business in the future. I hope to also become a music therapist myself. And it was just amazing to hear about Pamela Fisher's line of work and how she connects with her kids and her clients and how she's making such a big difference in her community. And after hearing her talk, I did a little research about her programs on her website. I looked up her resources that she had about music therapy. And I think she's she's got some amazing work that was just very inspiring for me to hear about. I gave her a follow on Instagram and I see the kinds of amazing work that she does. And I even looked up steps to becoming a music therapist. And I think it was such a great push for me. The episode that stood out the most to me was the one with Rachel Barcelona talking a lot about the actually autistic movement. I really agree with some things she said, some things about the neurodiverse movement occasionally being a little judgmental or disagreeing with some of the stances and then agreeing with some of the stances. And I connected with that personally because there are some things that I do and don't agree with. And it left me feeling inspired because I do fight for the neurodiversity movement. Something that made me do research on a topic I'm passionate about and learn more about it would be mental health or service dogs. And something that helped me when I was feeling alone was my church and my friends and family. What I wish the world would know more about autism would be self-acceptance. And if there's anything I'd like to share about the community, it's to be yourself. An episode that really stood out to me was the episode on February 24th, which was episode 49 with Michael Gilberg. It contained a lot of diverse topics like special education and disability rights, the importance of teachers and staff being aware of the social emotional needs of their students, that school isn't solely about grades, and also contained a lot of great information about his own personal experiences. This particular episode really made me self-reflect on who I am as a service provider in a school and how I can better support my own students based on who they are as individuals. He gave great tools and strategies for service providers and how to support social-emotional development, and that it's extremely important, sometimes more so than progressing academically in grades. He also shared signs to be cautious and aware of when it comes to students receiving appropriate needs at a school setting. But I think most importantly in this episode, I felt inspired when Mr. Gilberg challenged the idea of normalcy and questioned if neurology even has a quote unquote normal or if it's just whatever society has deemed as normal at that moment in time. Overall, he gave a great reminder that in the end, we all just want the same thing, which is friendships, connections, and a life of meaning. I really liked the ep- episode about intersectionality. It's not enough to like bring it up, I feel like. And she did such a good job explaining it. And it was impactful. And it was something I utterly agree with. I think so many times in autism and the neurodiverse movement, we only talk about autism. We only talk about 
that instead of talking about how our race, our social economic class, and our education level, I mean, it all affects who we are as people. And I always believe and tell people autism is a part of who I am. Autism doesn't control me. It's a part of who I am. And I both love and hate that part of me. So yeah, I think it's so important to like bring up that like, look, like this is a part of who we are. It's a huge part. And that other parts are impacted by it and vice versa. If I had to pick an episode that stands out to me the most, there are a couple names of some guests that come to mind. Russell Lehman and his ability to talk about all abilities and the reality of many invisible disabilities in his way with words and just his ability to write poems and rhyme. And if anyone knows me, <laughs> they know I love to write and I also love to rhyme. So I can really appreciate Russell's work. Jeff Snyder is another one that stands out to me. I think it's amazing that both him and Russell are self-advocates that are sharing their journey with us and with the world. I can also connect to and appreciate Jeff's ability to talk about movie characters and how they portray autism traits. I just love that. And my teaching style is very similar to that and how I like to help my students understand the incredible parts about who they are. Joy Johnson also stands out to me as another self-advocate. She really paves the path for the incredible potential and abilities of adults with autism. The episode that really left me curious is Cheryl Albright's episode. I believe it's episode 28, and she's an occupational therapist and also a certified yoga instructor. I think it was called Yoga for the Special Needs Children. And so that episode really just left me wanting to know more about how she has learned to incorporate yoga into her services for her clients and really just about occupational therapy in general. And hearing her explain the way that it is adapted throughout the lifespan for a variety of reasons and all of the things that she's able to help support people with in gaining skills in that area through occupational therapy really was just inspirational. And I love the way that she explained that she really cares and prioritizes the way that she delivers services. So from a trauma-informed background. So I just appreciated that episode so much and I learned so much and it was just such a pleasure to hear Cheryl share her experiences. In episode 59, I spoke with certified financial planner Andrew Comoro. He's the founder of Planning Across the Spectrum, a company that specializes in helping individuals, families, and employers of people with autism and other disabilities to pursue financial independence. Here's some of what Andrew had to say about financial planning and employment. I take a, a practical approach in that it's always better to do something than to have big plans and do nothing. Mm -hmm. A couple things I notice, especially about autistic population is we seem to feel more shame in general around money. And when we're not necessarily good with money, I think we blame it even like internally, right? Or I see I have my clients where they think it's their autism that makes them not good at it. When in fact, they're as good, if not better 
than a lot of neurotypical clients surrounding money, finance, et cetera. We just, for whatever reason, right? And maybe it's because, you know, we want to know so much and there's just details and it's such a confusing field for everyone. So one of the first things I do is I encourage individuals to take some credit for, for where they are. And most of the time, they're doing better than they think they are. We shouldn't feel that an employer has to take a chance on us. I think a lot of us sell themselves short. I notice this, especially when it comes to job coaching. So you asked how we're supporting people during the pandemic. And so one of the things we do is we have some individuals on our team who are autistic themselves, and they'll help coach or work with individuals as well. And it's part of what we can provide. And there's what's called vocational rehab, where the, the government has, can help like get a job and training. The biggest issue is a lot of it's retail job. They look at it from, again, looking at it from a different angle is, what company will hire this person? Mm -hmm. And not, what does the individual do? And how can we get them to do more of what they want to do? Episode 60 featured autism and disability self-advocate Ryan Litchfield. In the following clips, Ryan talks about his experience receiving ABA therapy and the need for research about older autistic adults. We all have strengths. We all have needs. And I believe every person with autism is a person. I'm Ryan. I'm not just autism. My name's not autism. It's Ryan. I think ABA for me, and I go back to my experiences, I mean, it's helping me to learn more about myself. And I think it's hard. And I'll use the analogy, the square peg in the round hole, because that's so common, I think. For people with autism, it's like, we're the square pegs. And then it's like, you know, sometimes with society and stuff, it's like, here's the round hole. In older adulthood, there's also increased levels of depression and suicide. Because as you get older, you know, you, you lose people in your life. You know, people pass on. Mm -hmm. People start to feel isolated. The services and the supports that you've had maybe when you were a child are starting to fade. So this is a legitimate concern, and especially the fact that there's not enough research about these specific things. And with people on the autism spectrum, because it is a developmental disorder, which involves, you know, the behavior, the challenges with behavior, communication, social interaction, I mentioned how basically they may start demonstrating behaviors of aggression, property destruction, and even just some behaviors that are self-injurious. And those are some, some red flags that you know, it's good that we're seeing that, you know, in the other age groups, but we still have to monitor those kinds of things in adulthood and older adulthood. In episode 61, I was joined by Nora Al-Harabi, a teacher and mother of four in Saudi Arabia. Her second child, Faris, is on the autism spectrum and receives services at Namayi Center, our partner site in Riyadh. Here's Nora sharing her thoughts about her son's future. I have a lot of hopes for Faris. First, I hope he completes his education. His father and I will stand by his side 
to finish his uh, university education and find his right job. I also seek to teach him to depend on himself. Also, I want uh, him to practice his more hobbies, to find uh, some hobbies. He can enjoy them in his free time. I'm looking for someone, a specialist, to teach him how to swim well and to understand the laws of basketball because he loves them a lot. Also, I hope he built a good relationships with those who are around him and to have good friendships which will help him in his life. In episode 62, autism self-advocate Cassidy Hooper came on the show. Cassidy also has a rare genetic condition called Turner Syndrome. As the president of the ARC of Northeast Mississippi Autism Now Division, she mentors other autistic people and connects them with resources in their area. Listen to Cassidy describe the lack of adult services in rural U.S. Right now, there's nothing available in my area, which we can also talk about the lack of services for autistic adults, especially in rural communities. And like me, I'm in Mississippi, so it's very hard to find services. Mm. And I think that that needs to change. What kinds of services do you wish you could receive right now? I think for me, like, learning independent living skills, money management, and how to budget and, you know, how to do all the things that are important for adulthood and important to live on your own and how to, you know, live independently. Episode 63 was the first release of one of our Global Autism Community monthly roundtable discussions. This first month's theme was Individualized Education Plans, and panelists included Autism Self-Advocate and BCBA Brian Middleton, Special Education and Disability Rights Attorney Michael Gilberg, and Special Education Teacher Colleen Dorsey. If you'd like to attend and participate in any of our future events, you can sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. In these next clips, Brian, Michael, and Colleen talk about their different roles on an IEP team. The parents and the individual have the power. IDEA puts the power predominantly in your hands. And so if you don't speak up and a school district is not doing what they're supposed to do, then nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to change. Like Michael was just saying, there are conditions where people are are demanding something that is that is outside the resources. And that's one of the reasons why I think that taking the collaborative approach is such a big deal. I usually come out in as an outside contractor. I'm not a district employee. So my job is to be that support staff. And I'm predominantly providing services in home and center. But if the school staff are open to it and the school district is open to it, I am 100% happy to come into the school, come into the home, uh, in, into the classroom and use the analytic skills I have to, to help the teachers. And not all I, behavior analysts have the experience I have, but I got the vast majority of my supervision hours completed while I was a special ed teacher. So I was applying behavior analytic principles, principles in the classroom. 
I use a lot of the data from my evaluations, the assessments I do, whether informal or formal, to help me identify where they're at and then always thinking about where they want to be or where they can be. And I always think of their, you know, their fullest and highest potential and what tools can be put into place to help them be successful. And I love, Rachel, you said the word independent, right? Like you want to put accommodations that are going to help work with them and not do things for them. So I think that's a really big push is, and I have to admit, I've seen over the years, a lot of people just copy and paste. Oh, here's a list of accommodations. Let's put these in again. But I make sure to take that time to highlight ones that are still beneficial and still in need or highlight, and I do different colors, I'm a color coder, and then I put in different color ones that they might not need anymore or might need the next step up or the step down, if that makes sense. So accommodations, I think is like a science in itself, right? Because there's so many great ones out there and it's so unique and individual to each student what they need. So I guess in summary, my accommodations, I look at each goal area and what they need to be successful, whether it's their academic goal or their social goal or their behavioral goal and how they can best support be supported in my classroom environment. My role as an attorney is, it can be viewed as an adversarial thing. I view it as, in some ways, the relationship between the parents and the district is broken down, school district is broken down, and it's now up to me and the school district attorney to be that bridge, depending. There are some school district attorneys I get along great with, and there are some school district attorneys I get along horribly with. But usually the ones I don't get along with, no parent attorney gets along with. And I see us as a bridge. To be honest, I look at them as a method of helping the child and telling the school district not to just say you're wrong, but here's how you can do better. Although in some cases, some school districts are so bad, I literally have to go in there and say, you're wrong. It's not appropriate to let this kid get beat up. It's not appropriate to tell him to learn to be normal. It's not appropriate is when cases are egregious. But in cases where it's not appropriate to do this with the kid. So it all depends on the meeting, whether we can get to that place of the school district finding out that they there are better ways to do with to accomplish what they want than to punish the child. I was joined by Vanessa Lista in episode 64. Vanessa's autistic older brother, Billy, has been her inspiration her whole life. Currently studying kinesiology and psychology, Vanessa's goal is to become a pediatric physical therapist. Listen to Vanessa's advice to other siblings. A lot of times, um, it can be hard to accept your brother's diagnosis or your sibling's diagnosis. I know for a while, it was hard for me to realize that I'm never going to have that older brother that you see in movies that defends you or is that big tough guy to beat those people up for you. But they're there for you in other ways too that you may never think of. Like my brother has been my biggest inspiration in my life. Like not even to just be cheesy or anything. He he showed me the occupation that I want to do the rest of my life. He he taught me patience. He taught me kindness. He taught me to never judge other people based on what they look like or <laughs> the weird thing they're doing in a playground. Um, <laughs> that there's really so much more to people. And if you open up that opportunity, you can learn so much from other people every day of your life. Episode 65 showcased autism self-advocate, TEDx speaker, and author, 
Jude Morrow. Jude is the founder of Neurodiversity Training International, an autism mentoring, training, consultancy, and motivational platform. Next, Jude describes what it was like to grow up feeling like something was wrong with him and what the neurodiversity movement is. As a child, it was, once there was a lot of happy memories and happy moments and a lot of things that I loved, I became acutely aware that I was somebody that wasn't socially acceptable to everybody else because the onus was always on me to change. That lining my cars up and stacking things up was was a wrong way to play. And I had to change. Then whenever I used to whisper things under my breath to communicate and almost practice interactions, that was per communication skills. And I was the one who had to change. Then as far as playing games with more than two players, it wasn't really my bag, it wasn't my jive, didn't really take to it. Say it the same way I don't really know. And that was deemed per social skills. Again, whatever they are. And it was always me that had to do all the changing. And sadly, even in 2021, the year that we're in now, that still happens. Is that a lot of people, now don't get me wrong, will say what their heart's in the right place that, oh, these autistic children need to fit in to survive and not get bullied and everything else. And it's it's just not true. It's just not the right attitude to take. Because for me, I would say that all my teachers and classroom assistants had their hearts in the right place for me. But at the end of the day, the onus was always on me to change. And that existed right the way through my, my school journey from kind of my nursery schools, to mainstream primary school, elementary school, and then uh, secondary school. Then after that, the onus is always on us to change. That's why I now want to say that attitudes and perceptions need to change, not us. Neurodiversity is a new uh, progressive way to view those of us who are different. Neurodiversity is mainly captured by the autistic community, but it does capture a lot of things, whether that's dyslexia, ADHD and a range of other neurotypes and that it's okay to be different. The neurodiversity movement is one that really goes forward to seek acceptance and understanding rather than just simply awareness. Neurodiversity would denote that we are our own diversity group rather than patients or people that need to be cured or fixed in any way. And under the definition of neurodiversity, it doesn't show or highlight anybody as having any disorders or diseases or that they're a broken version of normal, is that the way you are is perfectly fine and with the kinder mindset toward you, you will thrive and excel in life. Episode 66 was a double feature with two of our SkillCore alumni, Sarah Glass and Eliza Cagle. Sarah has ADHD, and Eliza is autistic. Although they've never met in person, Sarah and Eliza have several things in common. Both of them are late-diagnosed neurodivergent women, have a son on the spectrum, and are board-certified behavior analysts. Listen to their personal and professional takeaways from doing SkillCore. I think for me, maybe really feeling more confident in my abilities. And I think while it promotes being humble, it also really promotes confidence and 
knowing that you can find answers or work with other people to find answers. And that is like hugely beneficial and like feeling like, okay, I can do what I do and I have those strengths. So in the past, I was really good at catastrophizing and I still can be. Um, My mind can go to great places of what potentially will happen I think Skillcore really makes it so like you can have these stories in your head, but you quickly realize they're just stories because it's this constant test of like, okay, we don't know what's going to happen in the next few hours. And we could catastrophize, but it's never as bad as what the story is. I feel like the biggest improvement I've made in my own clinical practice has been what I learned at Skillcore. Not necessarily specific techniques, although that's part of it. But the analysis that goes into behavior analysis, for sure, being on a team with people from all over the country, like you had said, you, different regions have different styles and types of ABA they do, and just learning from my teammates. And then seeing ABA done through a different cultural lens completely, it made a huge impact on my practice. Also, I have this network of people that are all amazing and they all have different strengths and specialize in different things. One of the girls that I was on a trip with, she was working with people with um, traumatic brain injury. Another girl on a trip that I worked with, she was starting to specialize in animal training for animals that were abused. I've worked with some really amazing species that are doing amazing things with AAC devices. That's not my area of expertise. So as soon as I have a question, that's who I'm calling. (laughs) But um, even I think some of the biggest things are in the soft skills that you learn, um, like the Socratic method. That's really improved the way that I communicate with families and the way that we develop goals with the team by doing that Venn diagram approach um, where you're really pinpointing the things that everybody's on board for and they're the things that need to be done the most first rather than just going off of some assessment and you know some cookie cutter curriculum in episode 67 i was joined by autism self-advocate becca Lori hector becca is an autism neurodiversity and inclusion consultant and she offers a personal development course for autistic adults called self-defined living a path to a quality autistic life Here's Becca on receiving a late diagnosis and overcoming autistic inertia. I think for all of us that get a late in life diagnosis, that first year is incredibly difficult. It's it's painful in a lot of different ways, but it's also exciting in a lot of different ways. And so it's an emotional roller coaster of a year for, for a lot of us. Um, you know, you're getting a new piece of your identity and you have to reform how you, you think of yourself and how you fit into the world and a whole lot of things. I mean, it's just, it's really difficult to explain how, like, you can go through your life. I mean, I lived almost four decades on the planet before I knew about this piece of myself. And so I had to digest that. And then I had to figure out where it fit in my life as a 36-year-old woman, but also, you know, as an adult and what was this going to mean and all of these things. And um, then there was a lot of look back, right? A lot of looking back at little me and feeling sad that she didn't get the help that she needed, feeling sad that, you know, she felt really victimized and traumatized and um, 
really just, you know, angry that the adults around me didn't help more or better or something. And we all kind of go through that. We all go through that, that kind of anger stuff. And then we also kind of look through our lives trying to find the autism everywhere, right? Like, where was it this whole time that nobody caught it? Or was it there? You know, like just looking for um, more of that validation. And really, it's a need to understand ourselves, right? It's like, oh, my God, I was living my whole life thinking that I had one eye and somebody just took a patch off my eye and now I have two eyes. And it's like an insane thing. And so it takes a whole lot in that first year. And it's a really personal journey. No one can do it but you. And it's just a real emotional roller coaster. So that that first year is tough. After that, it gets a lot easier. So autistic inertia is something that we talk about. I think of it as a pre-syndrome to a shutdown or even more so a burnout. And so what autistic inertia is, is that we get stuck a lot. We can get stuck for any number of reasons. Sometimes it's a big disappointment in our life. Something doesn't go the way we wanted it to go, that kind of thing. The other thing could, you know, it could be exhaustion. It could be a whole bunch of different things. But what inertia looks like is an autistic person on the couch with no motivation. Right. That's what it looks like to the outside world. What it feels like inside is I'm stuck. I don't know how to get unstuck. So I'm just going to keep sinking into stuck because I, I don't see an out. I don't know how to get out of it. And so what we end up seeing is people that go from the couch to the bedroom and the basement, and then they don't want to leave the house and, and inertia turns into this big burnout phase, right? Because we never get out of inertia. So the things that I try to teach in my course are all about catching things like that early learning your triggers. What are the things that trigger you? Are you someone that really suffers when you have a disappointment, right? Maybe you put 150% into everything you do. And so it hurts, right? But you need to learn that about yourself. We all need to understand what our triggers and traps are as human beings. So you have to figure those things out. And when you can figure those things out, you can stop this stuff before it happens by doing self-care and understanding what you need. So what happens a lot is that folks don't know how to do that and they end up in this inertia place. And the key to getting out of that inertia place is movement. The key to all of it, right? Inertia is that it's a stuckness. And if you want to get unstuck, you have to move. And so for a lot of us, the idea of moving and not knowing what to do, what's, what's the first thing I should do when I move? I don't even know that. I'm not going to get up. And that's a piece of autism that we call executive functioning is not knowing the first step right? And that can keep people stuck. Another thing that can keep people stuck is that overwhelmed feeling of just, it's so big, right? Like I haven't cleaned my house in three months and now I have to clean my whole house. Oh my God, too overwhelming. I'll just sit on the couch. And the next day the house is still dirty and it just builds on itself. So instead, what I say to everybody is defy that with movement. And it doesn't have to be a lot of movement. It doesn't have to be a big thing. And I always tell people to return to basics. If you're feeling the inertia, don't worry about your big responsibilities. I don't want you thinking about those things. What you want to think about is, is your laundry done? Did you eat today? Have you showered in a while? Does your dog need a walk, right? These really basic things that mean you're taking care of yourself. And if you can get up one day and do the laundry, and that's all you do that day, but you did the laundry. So the next day you wake up and you're like, haha, but I did the laundry yesterday. What can I do today? And we build off of that momentum until we're back up to the speed we're used to being at. In episode 68, Maggie Nunez came on the show. Maggie is a mother of three, two of whom are autistic teenagers. In this clip, Maggie encourages other parents to prioritize their own health in order to effectively take care of their children. Oh, Lord. <laughs> How do I take care of myself? Well, 
I try my best. I uh, take care of myself by keeping my mental <laughs> space, my circle of people that I surround myself with. I try to be careful about, because I'm very sensitive, I can absorb more than what I need. <laughs> so I try to be surrounded by great people, positive people. I love to go to the gym. That's like my outlet. I feel like we all need something that we love to do and to make sure that we don't compromise that time. Like to me, going to the gym is my therapy. And reading books, listening to podcasts. That's another way of me taking care of myself. Not doing the dishes if I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) Because sometimes we think that by taking care of yourself is by going to the salon and doing your nails. That's taking care of yourself as well. I do that sometimes, don't get me wrong. But it could also be saying no to an invitation that you get. Because you know that you're going to feel better by not going to that place. It could be by not being friends with somebody that is draining you. Because you know that if, if, if somebody's going to be draining you, you're not going to be mentally okay. Even though I'm still struggling keeping up with my, my health. But I, I know that my body is my card. <laughs> so... If I see a red light, I right away, I stop. I don't ignore it. I'm like, what's going on here? Because I know that my kids, our kids, they depend so much on us. And in order for us to be there and do the best that we can for them, first, we have to take care of ourselves the best that we can. Episode 69 featured autism self-advocate, animator, illustrator, teacher, and public speaker, Danny Bowman. Danny is the founder of Danimation Entertainment, which has produced nine award-winning animated shorts, a PSA for Autism Society of America, and a music video that premiered at San Diego Comic-Con. Danny teaches animation to teens and young adults with autism and other disabilities at summer camps around the world, in person and online. Listen to Danny describe her passion for animation and her company's mission. My favorite part is seeing all the animation coming to life from concept to completion. When you see an animation being done, you're seeing the story being brought to life. You see, in every animation production, there are four stages. First, you have development, which consists of premise and outline of story. You have somebody who can do, who is pitching the story and development and getting the ideas. You have from pre-production, which means you have people that write scripts, storyboards, and voice acting, and visual development. You have production, which consists of doing an animatic and doing animation. And then post-production, where you have all the editing and the music music and sounds and audio mixing. My favorite part is seeing how it's brought to life, seeing how it works from concept to completion. What I enjoy most about teaching is seeing a whole diversity of students' creativity coming to life. If we see a student work that is exceptional and beyond what we expect, we invite them into animation opportunities like contests, like I've mentioned, the Easter Seals Disability Film Challenge. We involve our students in many projects, including film challenges, and the intention 
is to teach them how to work in teams and meet deadlines. I also try to include my students in commercial projects of which they do get paid depending on the project. Danimation's mission is to help students get ready to turn their passion of animation into a career that sustains them as adults. The key mission for Danimation is to educate and elevate people of all abilities, including autism, into the animation industry. In episode 70, autism self-advocate and licensed clinical social worker Robert Schmoos talked about how he helps adolescents transition into adulthood. Here's Robert talking about dating and falling in love. Really, the, the social implications, you know, that many of us autistics have. Mm-hmm. Like some are better than others, but just that social implications that we kind of have. And, you know, also that it seems at times society wants us to socialize or find relationships in this certain way. You know, you have to be this to to find love. You have to do that to find love. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, and it always depends on what makes you happy. Like, what makes you find love? What makes you want to find that special person? Whether that be a, a boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, husband, what have you. But we kind of have those, like, social anxieties, kind of like makes it difficult for us to go out and find that first. However, you know, one thing I do notice is that it's been getting step by step and getting bit and by bit better. You know, there now it's like people know like, hey, we can love. Like there was this old argument that's like, oh, autistics, they can't, they can't get married. They can't get in love. But but that's a lie. We can fall in love like everyone else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are start, starting to wake up to that. In episode 71, we introduced you to another one of our global autism partners, Jayshree Ramesh from Bangalore, India. She's the founder and director of Academy for Severe Handicaps and Autism, or ASHA for short. Listen to Jayshree emphasize the importance of parent involvement during therapy sessions. I see many of the moms who have come to us are uh, no longer, you know, feeling the stress, but they feel that they understand their kids now and they're able to help them out in the homes and also deal with the other family members. You see, that's very important because sometimes, you know, it's the mom who knows and just trying her best, but the others don't understand autism. Mm. So we always encourage the mom to keep training the others in the family. So that, you know, they understand how to deal with these kids. Because in many Indian families, you have the older generation also, you know, living. So there's a big, as it is, there's a big confusion, conflict with two, three generations together. So, you know, that that has happened. But I feel that because we have many moms who are working with us. And uh, we've continued to encourage moms to do the certified training and to also take this up as a profession if, they're able to do. So I think that is one good success. Uh, the third part of the story is it's not easy to find uh, trained special educators to work in, in our setups, especially when, you know, the money is very minimum that we pay here. So, so what happens is that we get teachers who are undergrads. So they become our assistant teachers and they learn 
the job with, through in-service and actually become a part of the classroom and they are taking on the burden also and supporting the special educator and helping with the group activities and stuff. So we have a large number of women like that who come from the local areas and have the heart in the right place and they're very willing to learn and they are very good with the children. They come with a lot of other talent of music and art and stuff. So I think providing for them as a profession and giving them a career path, I think that also has worked very well for, you know, with some of them. So I feel that it's not just success only with the kids, but somewhere I think it's the people around that we've also been able to make a difference. And that wraps up part one of our 2021 Highlights episode. I hope this trip down memory lane left you feeling inspired to create change in your own community. Come back next week to finish 2021 with part two of our Highlights series. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.